Welcome to the Scottish Business Network podcast. Hello, I'm Fraser Allen. Welcome to episode 29. From an early age, Ivan McKee was interested in politics and following a highly successful career in manufacturing and engineering, the Scottish independence referendum attracted his interest, ultimately leading him to stand as an MSP for the Scottish National Party and then become Minister for Trade, Investment and Innovation. Ivan admits that the transition from running his own business to being a government minister wasn't an easy one, but is now relishing being what he describes as sales director for Scotland. We met at the Scottish Parliament on the 31st of October, the day Brexit was due to happen, and talked about everything from volunteering in Bangladesh and aid convoys to Bosnia, to making a living out of transforming badly managed factories and the business case for an independent Scotland. Ivan McKee, Minister for Trade, Investment and Innovation. When you were a schoolboy growing up in Glasgow, did you ever dream that one day you would be a government minister? That's a great question. Um, Wow, now you never know what you don't know. And um, I was actually very interested in politics from a very young age because my father used to talk about politics all the time and he'd always have friends around and they'd talk about everything all the time. And I actually remember some of the politicians from that era, and I remember in particular Dennis Healy, who was the Chancellor at that time. So he's one of the first politicians I kind of remember. Um, and so as a, as a role model, maybe that stuck somewhere, because it's kind of quite interesting. <laughs> Your eyebrows aren't yeah, quite not enough. Quite, not quite. So yeah, so who knows? Um, but I was very interested, from, I remember, from a very young age. Really? Okay, so the seeds were there. I think so, yes. yes. And yeah. what was life like growing up for you? Oh right, um, wow, I was, uh, was born in Helmsborough, I, when my parents were living at the time, but we moved back to Glasgow when I was um, young, about four I think, um, and we're in Springburn, which is where my grandparents were and where my father was from, so we lived there through most of primary school, so that was back in the um, late 60s, early mid 70s, so right. yeah. I, um, Happy childhood? It was, it was good, yeah, because you just kind of got on and do things, and I, I remember Going out and about and doing stuff and about all day long and doing whatever things that nowadays parents would freak out about. Sure, yeah. Um, and pretty yeah, health and safety. Yeah, absolutely none of that. Um, and of course, it was a fairly uh, rough at times as well. Um, mm-hmm. Part of the world, especially back then. So yeah, right. there was yeah you remember being involved and things that you'd I say would, would freak your parents out these days. And you stayed in Glasgow to study? Stayed, yeah, I moved around different bits of Glasgow, um, ended up moving to the West End eventually, um, then went to um, Strathclyde University, um, which was a great experience. So you were studying manufacturing sciences and engineering there? Yeah. So what was your game plan at that point in terms of your career? I, um, I was good at the, the maths and physics and the, the, the kind of science stuff, but I wanted to do something that was a bit more practical as well, rather than just end up going down that um, purely theoretical route. So engineering was great, um, and the course I did was, it was called Manufacturing Sciences and Engineering, um, and it was great because it did all the core engineering subjects. You had a whole stream of business subjects running alongside that for I mean, not mm-hmm. to, but basically a year of accountancy, a year of kind of law, a year of whatever, um, business management, whatever. So those were all kind of thrown in as well. Plus, it was a sandwich degree. Um, so we did about five months of the year industrial placement. Right. So I worked for a number of businesses through the course of that. 
So, yeah, great education. Um, thanks, Strathclyde's fabulous. So you have a pretty career-focused either at that age? Yeah, yeah. I mean, kind of, you don't know exactly where you're going to end mm-hmm. up, but you kind of know that's the direction yeah. you want to go in. And by the time you come out of it, you've had quite a bit of industrial experience, so you sort yeah, of know yeah. where... Uh, what, what it's all about yeah. what manufacturing yeah. is all about and that uh, experience alongside the academic stuff is hugely important Heavily involved in, in student politics? I was, yeah I was yeah. vice president of Strathclyde okay. University Students Union at the time um, so that was the early 80s and that was um, was part of the Labour Party which yeah. I joined when I was what, 16 or 17 Yeah, Labour firebrand in those days were you? Yeah, yeah and there's a loads of them kind of kicking about now I mean Tommy Shepard was involved at right. that time um, and um, John Boothman who became a journalist later on now he was in the BBC and is now with the Sunday Times he was a president a couple of years ahead of me um, and various other people um, who were involved at that time are right. still involved yeah. in politics some are still in Labour some in the SNP yeah. Um, yeah. and um yeah, Richard Lennon was involved at the time as well. He was in Labour right. students at the time, so yeah. And you, you then did something which is not that uncommon now, perhaps, but it probably was quite unusual in, yeah. at that time, and that was to, to take two years out to do voluntary service in, in Bangladesh. So what, what did you learn from that experience? Oh, it was tremendous. I mean, I was still relatively young, so I would have been about 23, 24 when I went out there. And you... You're doing a voluntary job. It was an engineering-type job with some business on it, so it was ideal for what I was uh, kind of trained for. Um, but looking back, you're, you're pretty inexperienced, but you've still got quite a bit of value to add. Um, you are on your own in the project part of the time, but you're also mixing with other volunteers mm-hmm. that are out there as well. Um, a lot of the times so it was a great sense of, of community, met people there. <laughs> that I'm still in touch with, great friends from that time. And you learn a huge amount about the culture. Um, you um, have to... The first three months was, was cultural training, language training, before right. you're kind of thrown into the project. So you can kind of on your own and you just go on with yeah. it. Um, and you have to become fairly resourceful. Practically. So what sort of things were you doing on a daily basis once the project kicked in? So it was a small factory, it was a cooperative factory, so I would say kind of like a social enterprise type mm. thing back before mm. there was there was such things um, and they were making agricultural equipment um, and rickshaws and all kinds of mechanical engineering type stuff so um, I was working with them on processes um, helping organise the factory um, helping some of the technology helping interface with some of the customers as well so a whole load of different skills that were really uh, very useful from a, a business yeah. and technical point of view yeah. um, and you get to do things that you would never get to do at that age working in a business here so yeah. from that point of view it was great from a development point of view being in such an interesting environment there were, I mean Bangladesh at that time was in and out of martial law so right. it was quite an interesting really? yeah, yeah. And, um, so yeah you saw a lot of things that you wouldn't normally see mm. and um, very worth doing and I would recommend it to anybody that's thinking right. about doing something like that plus you give a lot back I mean the real reason you're there is to contribute to the organisations yeah. you're working with and to the community you're working with so uh, it's, obviously, it's obviously stayed with you as well because you, you still you still have a link with yeah and I gave that up when I became a minister because yeah. you need to kind of reduce the, cut some of those links for, for, for obvious reasons but um, 
I, I still support that organisation and I was a trustee until I became a minister. That's uh, right. Charity Education International that does work in rural Bangladesh, supporting health and education projects. So, returning to, mm. to Scotland, mm. um, there's, there's actually not a huge amount of information online about your mm. career and what you mm. did, so it'd be great if you could maybe Absolutely. talk us through that, that, that phase. Yeah, well, I got off the airplane in Heathrow and um, bought a copy of the Telegraph on a Thursday, I think it was back then, which had all the jobs on it. I started to go through the jobs. Um, went for a few interviews over the next few weeks and ended up working for a very interesting company in South Shields called ISL Interconnect Systems Limited. And the story, and I didn't know what I was getting into, right? It was, just a, it was a job, and mm. it looked like a, a reasonably good kind of technical engineering job. They made printed circuit boards. It had been bought out by a couple of entrepreneurs from GEC Plessy, and they'd done a, they'd basically turned it around from losing a ton of money, and they grew it to the biggest printed circuit board shop in Europe right. over the next few years. So I was kind of thrown into that um, environment, mm-hmm. and in kind of mid mid twenties, and the, the the way the guys that ran it worked was they would go and get a whole bunch of young bright kids mid-twenties mm. and just throw them in and let them go on with stuff right. um, so they were cheap they had no families they would work 24-7 and they were delighted to do anything you asked so that was us right so it was a whole group of us and they kept just churning them through and burning them out um, and that's kind of how they grew the business so it was a great education because yeah. there was no limit to anything you could just grab stuff and run yeah. with it um, the, they were rapidly growing and all, all the challenges that, that throws up so what was your um, role? Well, I started off doing um, kind of engineer support in the production mm. shift uh, environment so working um, alongside the operations guys um, and then moved on to do some material supply stuff uh, implemented an MRP2 system for them and all of that kind of stuff So um, and ended up laterally working in sales for them Right. Um, so, uh, which was kind of the way they did things. It was like I said, I'd quite like to move back to Scotland. They said, oh, um, okay, um, if you thought about sales, we could do with somebody selling in Scotland. Yes, I've never done sales, don't worry. We'll send you in a week's course and then we'll give you a car and send you to Scotland to sell circuit books. <laughs> that was, that was yeah. it, right? And I was back in the Silicon Glen days, so there was all the subcontractors up and down the, the M8 and like IBM and all these kind of people were all yeah, yeah, doing yeah. Going big guns on, on, on buying circuit boards Motorola was one of the big customers and so on so I did all of that with them for another year or two and then and you, you and just then, like, took to it like a, a duck to water well you just kind of got on with it right yeah, I mean yeah. the, the, the thing is you know you know the product inside out mm. um, and then you just learn by making mistakes in right, terms of right. how, you, um, how you I mean again there's, there's always a sales organisation so you're not mm. really on your own but you're pretty much um, yeah, yeah having to go in and, and do calls and figure out what the customer needs and all of right. that stuff and just kind of learn um, the tricks as you go so that was great great mm. grounding and introduced me to a lot of the stuff that was happening here in the sector at the time I then did a, a rapid fire and I went to a few places in quick succession um, which looking back on it was was, was not bad because it got me a bit of breadth but at the time it was a bit um, it was almost as if I wasn't quite settling but that was okay right. so I did a year selling MRP2 systems which was the, the hardest and worst job in the world so, so sorry, what's selling it? ERP systems so manufacturing software right so you're basically just phoning up people or following up leads trying to get leads it's real kind of 
cold calling, hard sell, hard no right, stuff. Right. I mean, it's um, it's a, it's a difficult gig if you're not cut out for it. But it was a good experience, and when you land something, then you're then working with the client to implement the system. So figuring out how the software is tailored to their specific uh, business environment, which was the good part of it, but the the, the sales part of it was it was tough. Um, so I did that for a while. I worked for a, a small company called Litton that was up in um, Glenrothes for a while. Um, worked in Diageo for oh, nice. a couple of years yeah. in the bottling hall. So again, it was material oh, supply, okay. controlling the, the warehouses and, and, and stuff yeah. there. Um, I was back there just a few months ago to see it after 20 years and it's, it's moved on. Right. But a lot of the same stuff is obviously the same, yeah. but the technology and the way they do things has moved on. Um, so I did that for a while and then ended up at Motorola in Bathgate, mm-hmm. cellular manufacturer. So we're in there doing... Um, uh, material supply. Uh, well, again, it started off kind of engineering support, production engineering support for production, and then moved into a material supply, and then laterally a kind of distribution logistics role. Um, and that was an interesting sector because it was growing globally at 25% a year, which was phenomenal back in the early mid 90s. And uh, Motorola was the market leader along mm-hmm. with Nokia. Um, and you look how that's all yeah. changed over that time period. Um, so I was there for about four or five years until they made the decision to close the factory there, yeah. which was a big decision, and there was about 3,000 people working there at the time. And then spent six months transferring that to Flensburg in Germany, where they also had a plant, so okay. it was part of the transfer team. Right. Doing that, and then I could have stayed on, but decided to leave that, go do something else, and how did um, you find working working in Germany? Sure, it was fine. Yeah, good. Yeah. Aye, it was good. Yeah. Um, the um, that was my kind of first ex- apart from the Bangladesh experience. It was my first, at more senior level experience of, of, of being based internationally, and um, that was uh, yeah, it was great. Just kind of fit in because it's the same company, so the cultural yeah. touch points yeah. are obviously very similar. And then you just kind of learn how to mm. survive in the, the, the wider environment. But that was a place called Flensburg, north of Germany, on the Danish border on the Baltic in the summer. So it was a, it was a good good mm. few months, yeah. Um, so I left that, ended up working for a company called APW, who were um, they had a factory in Southampton. They were a global subcontractor building a lot of stuff with the whole kind of vertical integrated um, series of businesses but the, the bit I was involved in the first bit I was involved in was, was, was stuffing board so it was um, backplanes for telecoms infrastructure putting the components on them so um, did that for a while then that plant they shut that one and I moved to Germany sorry to Poland where they had a big plant they just set up um, making telecoms infrastructure base stations for Ericsson right. and Nokia and so on and so forth um, so did that Ran that plant, they gave me some other plants to run, so eventually I was running about four or five plants for them, Poland and the UK. Um, and then they got in a bit of trouble, that was just after the dot com boom, mm-hmm. um, and they kind of really overstretched, bought a load, load of businesses that didn't make sense at a global level. Um, so they got in a bit of trouble, started closing plants and things. So I took a package and left them and then set up um, in consultancy. It was a, quite a kind of stumbled into it because I kind of left and thought it's the right thing to do to leave it wasn't working so exited that and ended up my first job I did was working for Flixtronics right okay doing a contract with them also in Poland also in a factory they had mm. which was 
very similar. Did you always have a, a hankering to kind of strike off on your own? I kind of thought about it earlier, like, kind of student, it was one of the things you kind of talk about, and then mm. later on in your early career, you're thinking you could do this, you could do that, you talk to some folks about it and whatever, but the opportunity never really came up because it's very easy to go on the corporate ladder, mm. and you just keep mm. getting promoted and bigger jobs and bigger money and whatever, and it's always hard to get off that mm. and go, well, why would you? So that kind of career break was, was an opportunity, um, and, it, and it was something that worked really well and if that hadn't happened I don't know I would perhaps mm-hmm. still have been I don't know on that corporate ladder um, but it was it was great and it's a real lesson I suppose when you're looking at how do you create more entrepreneurs it's almost as if you need to start going around and fire them because after you do that then life gets get your foot in a position where you need to do something um, so yeah that, that disconnect is quite mm-hmm. interesting it kind of resets the risk reward ratio so you're, you're, you're more willing to take risks because you're not, mm. you're not mm. losing as much on the downside potentially. Um, so yeah, so I kind of get into that, and then that just went great guns. Went one thing to the next thing to the next thing because I had a network. People would phone me up, what are you doing? Yeah. Come and help us with this, that, and the other. Got bigger, started bringing in people to help me. Built up a network on that side. So at the peak, um, well, I had about eight or ten folk working for me on an associate basis mm-hmm. so you just keep it really really lean just work from uh, from your kind of kitchen table or from an airport more likely mm-hmm. on your laptop employing yourself only everyone else is on a contractor right. basis so just that whole network thing um, which worked really well um, and that just kind of grew and grew and then what happened was and if you look back it's really interesting because one thing leads to another thing leads to another thing and you don't know what's going to happen next yeah. but it always um, if you take the opportunities things just kind of appear I ended up in a situation where there was a guy I'd worked with at Motorola back in the day who had got a job with a, as an ops director for a, a group and they had problems with one of the divisions losing a ton of money and the investors were on him saying you need to get rid of this thing it's, it's dragging everything down um, so he got an opportunity basically to take that off their hands but he needed a team so he brought me in with some equity um, and we'd already been in looking at the business and doing some consultancy with them so we kind of knew what the problems mm-hmm. were and we kind of knew and we started fixing them so he brought me in to do that um, as one of the one of the shareholders and we turned around pretty quickly because say, we knew what to do and when you're freed from the corporate structure yeah, sure. you can do things much quicker mm-hmm. much more dynamically um, the um, the guys that had been running it before as part of the business it had been the third there had been three divisions it was the smallest of the three they'd had a thing about we need to grow to be as big as the other two so it was all about more business more turnover mm-hmm. Um and the turnover is vanity, profit is sanity. So they were losing a ton of money on some big contracts. So we basically exited a bunch of contracts um, from some of the bigger customers. The business reduced by about 30 or 40% in turnover, mm. but started making money right. and freed up a ton of cash because we just worked all the inventory through the process. So very quickly, within a few months, with a ton of money in the bank, and we had uh, we were making, uh, making profit, which was really nice. Um, so kind of ran with that for a few years. That then led us on to buying up other businesses mm. um, that we found through various routes, um, either through customers wanting us to take things on because they, they, they had problems or things we came across. So we bought a business down in Liverpool that we bought and then sold a while later. We bought one in Wales that we, we moved lock, stock and barrel into the... And was the model quite similar in... in similar, but related, but yeah. kind of... 
the, the one we had, the, the first one was doing wiring harnesses for vehicles, um, kind of low to medium volume wiring harness stuff. Um, vehicles, aero engines as well, did a lot of stuff with Rolls Royce and so on. Um, and then the other stuff, and one of the other businesses was in that space, another one was sheet metal, but similar customer base, with another one up in Scotland. They, they were all down south, Manchester, Liverpool area. We'd one up here that was um, in Fife, that was a sheet metal business. Um, so, yeah, we just kind of right. did things with them. Some of them we bolted on, some of them we turned and sold, some of them um, didn't work out and we moved on, but it was another great learning experience from business. Point of view. I still had the consultancy going as well, so I was kind of doing both. Right, okay. So that kind of ran on for a bit, um, and that took us all over the place because the consultancy stuff, I was doing stuff in Mexico, China, um, India, all over the place. The, um, the, the business we bought at plants in Croatia and Estonia and, uh, and the UK, um, and then we opened a plant in Bosnia, which was, which was interesting as well. So, so all of that was getting so going. Happened, well, then we got to a stage where I did a bit of ex- exited some of the stuff and it did well. So financially, it was in a good place. Um, and then the referendum came along. Right. And I'd always been interested in politics and, and always watched what was going on. And the um, I kind of looked at this and thought, this is interesting. I wonder how this would work. So I had to look at it from a financial point of view as if it was a business if this was a business would mm. you buy it mm. would, could you turn it could you do something with it um, and I kind of came to the conclusion that the fundamentals were there the right mm. products in the right markets with the right customers um, but badly managed right typical right, MVO yeah. target and um, or buyout target and um, what this needed was new management um, and a bit of a different yeah. focus so I thought, oh, this makes sense. And when you run the numbers, it all kind of stacked up. I thought, yeah, this works. Um, so that's kind of what got me into it. And I kind of get sucked into the process of the referendum over mm-hmm. that period of time because I went to a meeting in the latter part of 2012, it would have been. And I ended up, I remember volunteering to do something, right? And then before I knew it, I was getting asked to go on panels with professional politicians and asked to go on the radio and the television and go to meetings and... And pretty quickly, I was probably spending half my time on that, which right. was great because I spent a year basically travelling up and down Scotland, going everywhere, meeting great people, and get put up in their houses and get take to wee community halls to do speeches about. Because you became director of business for Scotland. That's right. Yes, yeah, so it was all under that umbrella, yeah. um, and they were the kind of go-to people for if you wanted something mm. to come and talk about the economy, finance, of independence. So I put a pitch together. They put on YouTube which got more than 100,000 hits on YouTube. 35 minutes of me talking about economics, right? Got 100,000 hits, which was phenomenal. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the business was a, a big area of uh, debate during the, the referendum mm-hmm. with some of the big Scottish mm-hmm. businesses, you know, threatening to pull out and, mm-hmm. and so on. Um, how did you think it all played out? And do you think now, now that there's a, a quite a strong possibility of a, another referendum, yeah. do you think some of those organisations might behave a bit differently? Yeah, I think there was, I mean, a lot of that was tied up with politics. So a lot of the organisations, business organisations that would talk the talk on that, it was because they were, they, they were close to the UK government or didn't want to upset the apple cart and didn't want to be disruptive in that sense. But if you talk to business people who, um, entrepreneurs or people managing SMEs or people who've been in that kind of game mm. and you explain it to them in that sense about standing on your own two feet so it making the decisions that mm. yourself that affect you so it 
looking at the, the, the opportunities for your business, if you like, rather than being tied to a part of a bigger group, if you like, which yeah. we have got very little interest in, in the, the strategic direction for your business. You explain it in those terms, it kind of makes sense to business people. Um, but the, 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 the organisations and the, some of them, the, the people, people working for larger corporates who perhaps were entrepreneurs themselves, they started senior jobs in big corporates, um, to them it would also look different because they're in a stable mm. environment, don't upset anything, sure, yeah. um, and got ties to whoever, whatever. So that was, um, but having said that, I think now we're in a very, very different place. I think the Brexit shambles is obviously mm-hmm. um, forced people to kind of press the reset button and think differently about mm-hmm. all of that situation. I think the work that's been done over a, a number of years by the Scottish government engaging the business showed a huge amount of credibility um, and um, imagination and willing to work with business and being very mm-hmm. cooperative and partnering across a whole range of issues that have come up has been... Um, it's been very uh, helpful, so I think there's um, a different, very different perspective. Right, on that. right. What's what's your message to Scottish businesses listening to this in terms of what? Well, the thing I always say is, if you look at, and one of the key things that led me to it is, if you look at who the richest countries in the world are, mm. right, um, and it's all Scandinavia, mm. Switzerland, Australia, whatever, Ireland now, Belgium, whatever, they've all got, uh, and then Singapore, New Zealand, and so on and so forth, they've all got something in common, there's good reasons for that, they're all the same size as Scotland, because they're agile, they're nimble, they're flexible, they're able to react quickly, none of them, none of them have got anything like the human capital or the natural resources or opportunities that Scotland has. So the thing that's holding us back is we're not able to take control of that and direct ourselves. Right. So if you look at it that from an opportunity point of view, that's where you want to get to and there's no reason not to. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's about being in a very exciting place with a huge amount of opportunity at just the right time. Right. Yeah. Uh, and you referenced the Brexit shambles. Mm. How do you feel about that? Because it's it's... The worse Brexit has become in terms of being a mess, is actually the more it's increased the opportunity for a second referendum. So, it's a yeah, well, I think a couple of things. I think um, the referendum and the yes vote in the referendum are inevitable, right? Um, I think that, or it's a fact that people are more comfortable with the concept of independence if the economy is doing well. So, something like Brexit that creates uncertainty. Um, and damage to the economy is actually bad uh, for people voting for independence mm-hmm. if you look at it from that perspective because all the stats and you look back over, over time when the economy is doing better people are more comfortable with the concept of independence when yeah. things are tough and there's a global downturn or whatever they kind of pull back a bit and they're mm-hmm. less likely to take that's back to that kind of risk reward mm-hmm. ratio I suppose so I think that um, the Having a damage in Brexit is actually bad for independence because it kind of, in that sense, okay. right, countered against it. Obviously, you've got the situation that I mean, if it's a burning platform, you want to get off it. So, but of course, you don't want the platform to be burning because at the end of the day, the relationship with the rest of the UK, mm-hmm. from a business point of view and a political point of view, is hugely important in the post independence mm-hmm. um, situation, as is the relationship with, with, with all of our European neighbours. So the a healthy UK economy 
is good for Scotland, of course mm-hmm. it is. So um, that is, is, is a key factor as well. And I think that, who knows how this will play out, I'd hate to predict it, but a scenario whereby the UK realises, uh, it comes to its senses and kind of pulls back from Brexit is... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, is, 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 is would be welcome, of course it would, um, and Scotland in that context being independent um, mm-hmm. and a member of Europe as an independent country would be kind of where we're heading. Right. And in terms of your your current role, mm. having worked in, in the private sector and running your own business, what was the transition like to, to working <laughs> in in government surrounded by uh, bureaucracy? Mm. Um, how, yeah. how did you handle it? Was it how you expected or was it different well you go into your eyes open because you, you know it's going to be different um, you know that it's going to be challenging on a number of levels um, you know that you're under much more scrutiny than you are in the business environment so you kind of expect that so and you also expect a bit of unexpected stuff so you're not going into thinking well what a what a big mistake although in the early days I used to wake up and think why am I doing this <laughs> and those thoughts became less and less which was nice right. over time um, there's two parts to that really the, 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 the first couple of years being a full time politician and learning the kind of your apprenticeship and learning the skills of being a politician yeah. is, is one thing as a backbencher and you have to kind of go through that because mm-hmm. you've got those skills the job I'm doing now and have been doing for the last year and a half um, in government looking after trade, investment, innovation. It's, it's great. It really suits the experience I had before. It means I spend a huge amount of time engaging with business here and internationally. You're basically selling Scotland. You're the yeah. kind of sales director for Scotland right. PLC. Yeah. That's, that's the kind of way I look at it. So you're taking that message, the full kit of everything we've got to offer, taking it on the world stage and presenting it to people, which is uh, which is great. Really enjoy that. Right. Um, you still get things in the political environment there's a bit of the knockabout that's, that can be a bit um, mm-hmm. less than constructive at times but that's the environment it is and you just need to deal with it right and in, in t- your, your role obviously covers trade and innovation is there ways in which what you're doing there can also help to bridge some of the the, the sectors in Scottish society is it, is it more than just business can you oh yeah yeah. that's one of the great things um that there's a much broader appreciation and focus of that. The, the, the key to all of this is to have the economic engine that, that works and motors, but to have that plugged in in a way that the rest of society is all benefit from mm-hmm. that. So the inclusive growth agenda is, is, is hugely important. Uh, beyond GDP, the wellness economy, yeah. all of that. And the great thing is that Scotland is in a very good place there because we've developed the processes, the framework, the thinking and the execution around about that better than most countries in the world. There's only a handful of countries that, that, that are kind of in the space that we're in and that's globally recognised. I was in Brussels last month talking to the Commission about this and they were raving about what we were doing and that was just what we do but they thought it was great. Mm-hmm. So we're in a good place there. So we've kind of got an environment where we're able to take the great technology and innovation sectors we have, our great universities, the agenda around about inclusive growth and also the agenda around, agenda around about the climate emergency and the great work we're doing on renewables. Right. Um, so at all of those levels, there's a real social underpinning to it mm. and, uh, and on the environmental side, a real underpinning to it. But on top of that, we're able to leverage the technology we've got um, 
and uh, do well with it here, but more importantly, sell it internationally. Sure, so yeah, we're yeah. kind of monetizing that, yeah. which is which is a good place to be. Yeah. I think we've covered a lot of stuff, but I think I mean in, in terms of the message to business, apart from the obvious, Scotland's open for business. Come and do your thing. Um, the government is hugely interested and I'm hugely interested in engaging with businesses so I do uh, as much as I can get out and meeting businesses and listening and understanding what the challenges are so particularly on the international space and innovation and, and investment my, my portfolio areas so be very keen to hear from businesses that think they would like to me to come and meet them and see what they're up to you mentioned Bosnia earlier that you'd set up mm. a, a factory and in 1996 you took part in an aid convoy mm. to Bosnia so how did that come about and what was the experience like? Yeah again that was me just kind of watching things that were going on in the world and thinking this is, um, this is a, 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 a desperate situation um, and very disappointed that the UK government at the time hadn't done what it could and should have done and Europe was very slow off the mark to fix this kind of problem in the heart of Europe there was an organisation out of Edinburgh, Edinburgh Direct Aid, um, who were running convoys, and they're still doing stuff. There's a guy called Dennis Rutovitz, who's a, a good age now, um, and I met him last year when he came in to do some, some other stuff in the parliament on a, on a different issue, on, on Palestine actually, which he's also involved in. So um, they were running convoys on a kind of monthly, six weekly basis, taking stuff out to, to Bosnia. So um, I was at the Adjo at the time and I went to my boss and said, Can I get an extra couple of weeks over Christmas? And he said, What for? I said, to go do this. I said, well, Okay. <laughs> so, um, so it was really, I mean, a fascinating experience. Um, hopefully, did some good. Um, looking back, again, slightly dangerous. Um, but it's one of these things you just kind of go on and do. Right. Um, but did, you, did you travel through areas where there, there was fire? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, we were into, into Sarajevo. It was just after Dayton. Dayton was, um, we were out there December, January 95 to 96. Dayton, I think, was about November 95, which is when they signed the peace agreement. So we hadn't, um, when they signed up to go, it was still full on war. We went into Sarajevo and, and over Mount Igman. Uh, with the lights out because right. the lights are on your target for the snipers so down the mountain trail with the lights off uh, but by the time we come back out a few days later they'd opened up the main road back out so I was back oh, out right, through right. the containers right. which are all piled up to stop the sniper fire uh, to get back out again so it was in Sarajevo, Tuzla um, and um, uh, Garajda mm-hmm. so that was um that was not long after the, the Srebrenica thing had been in the June the previous year right. um, and Garage was one of the other enclaves that had been opened up so the road then was open by right. then um, so yeah it was an interesting experience you're obviously relishing a, a lot of what you do at the moment do you see yourself being a politician for the rest of your career or will you be tempted back into the world of business do you think it's up to the good people of Glasgow Pro <laughs> <laughs> I am um, yeah I don't know, we'll see. Um, I'm enjoying it just now. I've got, um, I'm, I'm very happy to, uh, to continue doing this. Um, but uh, life takes interesting turns, so who knows what happens years down the road. And what's uh, life like beyond, beyond politics and work? What, how, do you, how do you relax? What's wow. a typical weekend like when you get some time off? Yeah, um, catching up on my email. I, um, I was pretty full on, to be fair. Um, it's probably what I'm doing just now is I've done a lot of things this is probably the busiest thing I've, I've ever done which is great because it really keeps you on your toes and there's a great team round about me that kind of keep me moving in the right uh, the right direction um, I've started doing some running again I did right. that quite a bit 
three or four years ago. I've always done bit on bits on and off. Did quite a bit three or four years ago. I was doing a few marathons. Hadn't done any in the last year or so because right. I've been so busy with this. I'm back on that now, which is good. So have you got a target? You've got a big race coming up in the. Well, I'd like to do another marathon uh, next year. I'd like to get under four hours, which is not fast, but not bad for somebody mm, of my yeah, vintage. So that's my kind of target for next year, but that will require an awful lot of work. So um, yeah, a lot of six o'clock starts in the rain, right. getting the miles in. Um, and I've always um, done a bit of music, played a saxophone. Right. But again, that's something I've not done as much as I would like in the last yeah. the last few well. So I think getting a bit of space to do a bit more of that would be nice as well. And and finally, mm-hmm. uh, I'd just like to ask you who your heroes are. Well, not a good question. Um, I don't. There's all the kind of obvious people like Nelson Mandela and all this kind of stuff, which is which is great. Um, I tend to just kind of. I suppose I've got to the stage in life where you recognise that everybody's got good and bad. So you kind of recognise good things that people have done mm-hmm. um, and appreciate that and understanding that they're quite positive. Don't be surprised if you find out there's a whole bunch of bad and they're kind of flawed in some other part of their life. Yeah. So, yeah, I tend to kind of look at it that way. So there's right. things you see, you think, yeah, that, that's good. But I wouldn't kind of go head over heels on it because then you just become disappointed when you find out they've done something questionable at some stage. Ivan McKean, thanks very much. Thank you. Very interesting to hear about Ivan's career, which hasn't been widely covered before, and good to see a genuinely shrewd business person appointed to that role in the government. Listening back, though, I wish I'd asked him more about the saxophone playing. Apparently, he used to perform with local bands out in Bangladesh, and I bet that was a great experience. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks, visiting Glasgow and one of Scotland's most successful and long-standing businesses. To find out more about the Scottish Business Network, simply visit sbn.scot.